You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Good morning. So glad that you are here this morning. Um, grateful that Chris Kearns was praying for our team in Cuba. We have a group that left early. They got up. 1.30 a.m. Saturday to get ready to go. Can you imagine that? Uh, I wouldn't go to sleep. It would never happen. But I would be sleeping all day today. But So pray for them. Pray for their energy. Welcome back to the Italy team. We're so glad you guys are back. Some of you were here last week. Others of you, understandably, were uh, recovering from that trip. We've got a couple of students in Mexico. We've got someone going to Guatemala soon. We've got People all over the world serving the Lord. So just want to continue to pray for all of them. And I want to begin our time in the Word this morning by asking you a question. Don't want you to raise your hand. But I wonder how many of you would say that you come from a legalistic background. I also wonder how many of you are wondering what is a legalistic background. <laughs> Legalism has to do with the law. It's a spirit. It's an attitude. Uh, it seeks to make oneself worthy of God's love by keeping the law in one form or another. The Pharisees were perfect examples of legalists. Not only did they follow the law of Moses as closely as possible, but they had added a whole lot of laws which served them quite well because with these laws, they were able to control the people. They were the religious leader of Israel, and they were able to control the people by saying, if you do these things, you're good with God. If you don't, you're in big trouble. Many of the people, after a while, gave up trying to be good enough. They just accepted their fate in life, and they did the best that they could, uh, hoping that they could be Possibly somehow pleasing to the Lord. So the good news of Romans 8.1 is assurance, beauty, goodness, and wonder for all who believe in the face of legalism. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who were in Christ Jesus. Amen. That ought to do it. With legalism. But somehow, no. Why do we live with a sense of condemnation in our hearts so much of the time? Why do we feel that we forever fall short of the mark and that we just don't quite measure up? Could it be that we're still legalist at heart, that we don't believe God when he says there is no condemnation for those who believe? We know that legalism continued to exist in the early church because Paul rebuked those in Galatia for falling into the trap of believing that Jesus plus keeping the law is the means of salvation. Jesus made the down payment. I keep up with the monthly installments. That's how it works. So it's grace plus works, but grace plus works is not grace. We understand that's wrong. And it's not that we are seeking to keep the law for salvation, 
But we feel that we must obey every command and, and, and regulation that the church puts on people so that we can sense God's smile of approval rather than his frown of disappointment. Guilt with a capital G is the constant companion of believers in this category. The last form of legalism is what J.I. Packer called carnal conservatism, or really you could say carnal Phariseeism. Uh, the people in this category are those who craft their own law, just like the Pharisees did. It's not that these Christ followers are trusting their good works for salvation, but they make their own Christian law and they order the rules and the regulations that they follow in such a way that makes it easy for them to feel good about themselves. The group in this category will usually make generous use of comparisons. Well, I might be this, but I'm not like that. So that makes me feel better about who I am. Now, if you haven't figured this out at this point, we are all, in some manner, recovering legalists. Struggling legalists might be a better description. Legalism is our default position, not just for Christians, but for human beings. Those who want nothing to do with Christ are very legalistic. They make their own standards, and everybody has to live up to that standard or you're not good enough. We are ever seeking to justify ourselves. What happens, though, when we discover, as we inevitably will, that we cannot do this in our own strength? What happens when our illusions of control are shattered by a health crisis or a broken relationship or a sudden change of life circumstances. We need the heart that Rich Mullins asked the Lord for so many years ago in his song, If I Stand. If I stand, let me stand on the promise that you will pull me through. And if I fall, let me fall on the grace that first brought me to you. And if I sing, let me sing for the joy that is born in me these songs. And if I weep, let it be as a man who is longing for his home. Boy, Rich Mullins understood grace. He was taken too, too soon from us. So was Keith Green. Keith Green seemed to be beginning to understand grace. If I fall, let me fall on the grace that first brought me to you. Today's text should help us feel secure. And, and feeling is a, is, a, is a good bit of what I'm talking about because we, we might know certain truths to be true or certain truths to exist. And we know that if God said these things, we can trust him, we can believe him, but sometimes we just don't feel it. Well, today's text Helps even with the feelings. Helping us feel secure enough in Christ's finished work to avoid seeking to relate to God based on our perceived success as a Christian. Here's a test. If you have a chance to witness to someone in the afternoon, do you check to see whether you had the quiet time that morning? Your quiet time. 
Have you been in the word today? Have you prayed today? Oh, better not witness. I'm not prayed up. That's legalism. It's a legalistic approach to Christian. Should you pray? Should you have? Yes. All of those things are true. But our relationship with God is not based on our success. Well, let's just say our perceived success as a believer. Because any success that we feel is a perception. Two weeks ago, we began in Romans 8, verses 18 to 39. There was so much said in 18 to 30 about the purpose of suffering in believers' lives. No doubt, one of the reasons that we suffer is to make us homesick for heaven. At that day, all sorrow, and think about it, all sorrow done. The second portion of this text, verses 31 to 39, encourages us to live in assurance that is ours in Christ. I'll begin reading verse 18 uh, to remind us of God's purposes in suffering and to help us uh, get all of these thoughts that we have in our hearts about why certain things happen to us clear before rounding the corner in verse 31 to the glorious promises that are ours in Christ. I will ask you to remain seating, seated for the first portion of this text. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Romans 8. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revelation or the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For the creation waits with eager longing on tiptoes, remember, for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Wait a minute. What am I doing reading the same things? In hope, you were wondering how long it would take me to figure it out, right? Uh, that the creation will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. 
And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who were called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And I would ask you now to stand for the remainder of this text. And stand, brothers and sisters in Christ, with your heads held high. Verse 29, or 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God who indeed is interceding for us, just like the Spirit of God. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thank you. Be seated. <clears throat> Did you notice how many questions that Paul asked in our text, the last portion of the text, which is our text for the day, Romans 8, 31 to 32? Michael Bird has, uh, has organized a chart that helps us to understand the flow of this text, giving four questions and answers that we find in the text. And I wanted to share that with you. First of all, from verses 31 and 32, if God is for us, who can be against us? Well, the answer, think about it. If God is for us, who can be against us? Nobody. Why? Because God, having not spared his own son, will give us all things. Second, in verse 33, who shall bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? The answer, nobody. Why? <laughs> because God justifies the elect. It is God doing this work, not anyone else. Third, from verse 34, who is the one who will bring or who would dare bring charges against the elect? Not Christ, for he died, rose, and intercedes for us. Christ is not in heaven like that if we have believed. 
Fourth, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Any of the usual suspects? I like the Michael Bird's sense of humor. Nobody. Why? Because God's love makes us super conquerors. You get the point. This Christian life that we enjoy lives up to its name. It's all about Christ. It's all about Jesus. And to understand and receive these truths found in these verses will go a long way in helping us overcome legalistic impulses that loudly demand our attention. Not only so, but these verses, written as they were to, to a church facing severe persecution in the not-too-distant future, will sustain all believers in the darkest of days. So let's work through the text before ending with just a few points of application. The first two questions that Paul asked in response to all he had written so far in his letter to the Romans uh, were who dares to oppose these for whom uh, God loves or these that God is for? <clears throat> and who would be justified in bringing charges in, against those that God has chosen? Again, the answer, nobody. Why do such attacks fall harmlessly to the side? Because we're so good? No. Because Jesus died for the ones whom God loves. And to mess with them is to mess with God. Who loved them enough to send his own son, give his own son as a sacrifice our sins. Do you remember several weeks ago from Romans 5, the extent of God's love for sinners? Some would die for a really good person. Some would die for a reasonably good person. <clears throat> but Christ died for us while we were sinners. So do you <clears throat> see what an insult it is for us to bring our paltry Efforts before the Lord with an expectation that we will be justified by our good works. Perhaps you're like I was. I grew up in the Baptist church at Fuqua Varina Baptist Church. I heard all my life, Jesus died for your sins. And I didn't have the slightest idea what that meant. I mean, I confess that I believed it when I joined the church at 8 to 10 years old. I mean, I walked forward in the service and the pastor said, why have you come? Which I thought was the silliest question I'd ever heard in my life. I'm like, what? I'm like I want to join the church. But what I would have, if I'd been honest, I would have said, well, all my friends are getting saved during this revival and, or, or making a profession. They're going to get baptized next week and I want to go under when they go under. So... If that's all right. He says, well, do you know that Jesus died for you? And I'm like, uh, no. He said, well, he did. I'm like, okay. He said, do you believe it? I'm like, yes. He said, well, pray this prayer. Now, I'm sure it was more thorough than that. But that's the way my mind processed it. And it's kind of like, you know that Far Side cartoon? Where 
the man's talking to the dog and it says what the man is saying to the dog. Rover, don't you go out in the streets. Rover, you're going to get hit by a car. Rover, I just don't want to have to clean up the mess. Rover, you know, and what the dog hears. Rover, blah, 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 blah. Rover, blah, blah, blah. Rover, well, that's what I was hearing. Jesus died for you, blah, blah, blah. Jesus died for you, blah, blah. I didn't know what it meant. I mean, I, 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 I had no idea. I, I did understand that when you join the church, you're supposed to clean up your act. And that was a major fail on my part, I can tell you. I don't know why I thought Jesus died. Maybe to give me the freedom to live any way I wanted to live, so long as I was baptized and a church member. Since, as verse 33 affirms, it is God who justifies, then my beliefs were faulty. thought I had to be good enough. The Bible affirms two things about sin. One, all of sin and fall short of God's glory or of pleasing the Lord in any way. But also, two, the punishment for sin is death. Not just physical death, but separation from God for eternity, which the scripture tells us occurs or takes place in hell. Since all Adam's descendants are sinners, then we are in trouble of the worst sort. That's why Jesus' life of perfection was so important. 100% God, 100% man. He was the only one who could say to the Father, and it meant anything, I will die for her or him. When Jesus died on the cross, he took our sins upon himself as the perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We must, though, acknowledge our sinfulness and believe that Jesus died for our sins so that we can be saved. And when we believe, we become the people to whom the Lord is making these promises in Romans 8, 31 to 39. Verse 34 is an encouragement to those who are accused of hatred and violence against others because of their commitment to following Jesus and living according to the word. As believers... The Holy Spirit enables God's children to respond to the Father's love for them in Christ. The condemnation of the world, difficult as it is, is not the final word, verse 34. If Jesus died, rose, and intercedes for believers, do you think that he will let them uh, be condemned? Before the Father, do you think Jesus will condemn us before the Father if he died, rose, and prays for us? No, he advocates for us. All these years that you have been following Jesus, imperfectly though it may have been, Jesus has been praying for you, speaking against words of condemnation that others have brought against you both in this realm and in the spiritual world that we don't know. You may feel like sometimes, I just don't think anybody cares. I don't think anybody is praying for me. The Holy Spirit is praying for you. Jesus is praying for you. The Holy Spirit is groaning on your behalf. 
Jesus is stepping up saying, Father, I died for her. I died for him. She belongs to me. This one, Psalm 84, I think it is, was born in Zion. Born again. This one is your child. And guess what? The father always listens to Jesus. You have nothing to prove. Jesus has done the work. Your job is to believe and rest and rejoice and worship. Get it right. Get the order right. The Lord's Prayer, right? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. And then he goes on to talk about needs and, and confess sins. As John Piper quotes a friend of his often, we worshiped our way into sin. We need to worship our way out sin. And after we worship, then we will live the way that he wants us to live. Not in a legalistic manner that keeps us struggling with guilt and pride. And you don't know how badly I've needed to hear these words this week. So what then? <clears throat> what about <clears throat> all of the things in verse 35 that come upon us? Should we be happy when trials come? There will no doubt be tears and sorrow that accompany disappointment and loss. In fact, God has given us words for those times. Words of lament usually found in the Old Testament and more particularly in the Psalms. In the Old T Testament, the language is, Lord, deliver me from this trial. While in the New Testament, it is more, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. <clears throat> we are not required to give thanks for the trial itself, but we can give thanks in the trial because we know that this is God's will for us at this time. Such knowledge makes these verses in this section of Romans 8 quite interesting. Look at verses 35 to 37. Let's look at these together. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors, or super conquerors, as the scripture, as the Greek really indicates, <clears throat> through him who loved us. Now, if I were to begin a quiz, or if I were given a quiz that begins with, which verse in Romans 8, 31 to 39, does not belong? You'd go straight to verse 36, right? Um, I think we would all choose 36. It's not that the other verses don't contain difficulty. They do. But verse 35 is a perfect example of the, 
of the positive tone. Who is it that's going to separate us from this love of Christ? Can that know? Can that know? Can that know? It's positive and uplifting. And then, verse 36, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. How many Jewish men and women do you think had Psalm 44, 11, because that's where this verse is from, ringing in their ears as they were being led to the chambers, knowing they were going to die? So what is this about? Why? Well, first you'll notice it is a quotation. Paul is quoting Psalm 44, 11. Psalm 44, I would say, is the second most depressing in all the Psalms. Psalm 80, only Psalm 88 beats Psalm 44. In fact, Psalm 44 begins by recounting the goodness of God in delivering Israel from its enemies. But then he shifts to a complaint that even though the people had not forgotten God, Yahweh had sold his people for a trifle. We haven't done anything, and yet you're not blessing us the way that we anticipated your promises of blessing to be, she to be shown, to be played out. Their enemies mock them so that they were disgraced. The psalmist said, you have made us like sheep of the slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. Psalm 44 feels a whole lot like Habakkuk did at the beginning. God, why don't you do something? Why do you sit idly by when all of this is happening? So why do you suppose that right in this middle of incredibly victorious encouraging Romans 8, Paul quotes Psalm 44.11. Maybe there are two reasons. First, to acknowledge hardship and troubles that many believers endure simply because they are God's children. It's not wrong to cry or to grieve over loss that comes from following Christ or just from the consequences of living as a result of consequences of living in a fallen world. Remember, we groan with the creation. Paul probably thought of his own circumstances in verse 35, but then flowed right into verse 36, quoting Psalm 44. We, but then verse 37 indicates that the apostle understood suffering in an entirely different light than the psalmist did, which is the second reason he quoted Psalm 44. What is the difference between the sons of Korah, who wrote Psalm 44, and the apostle Paul? The cross of Jesus. Not only the redemption that we have in Christ, but the perspective we gain, the understanding of how suffering and glory are inextricably linked in this phase of God's plan for the ages. And we don't have to figure out why it's that way. 
We just have to trust him and believe that it'll all be clear in due time. It's all for God's glory, and God is always for his children. Don't believe it. Verses 38 to 39. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers that are seen and unseen, nor height, nor depth, heavens, hell, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Three points of application from Romans 8, 18 to 39. And you're going to have to fill in these points for the most part. I'll give a few words, but not much. Just like the text, the concepts are simple, but the implications are profound. First, live in the light of God's love for you in Christ. How many of you sat down this week or as you walked, did you bask in God's love for you? Or was it guilt? You should have done this. You shouldn't have said that. You, what is wrong with you? Or if you're a narcissist, what is wrong with other people? Did you believe what God says about his love for you? We are all legalists at heart, remember. The more you try to keep the law in your own strength, the more your sinfulness is exposed. That's Romans 7 for you. Romans 5 and Romans 8, though, are bookends of a section that begins and ends with the truth about God's love and his gifts for his people. <clears throat> How would you live <clears throat> differently if you truly believed that you are God's cherished, cherished child rather than feeling as though you're constantly a disappointment in his eyes? <clears throat> As Miles Stanford said many years ago, <clears throat> to be disappointed in yourself or to be disappointed with yourself is to have believed in yourself. Who are you believing in, yourself or God? In the words of Martin Luther, taken up many years later by Jerry Bridges, in the words you hear often from this pulpit, preach the gospel to yourself every day. That begins with God's love for you, despite your sin. Second, <clears throat> view suffering through the lens of the cross. But for a long, long time, we have sought to eliminate suffering in our land. At least those who are wealthy have sought to eliminate suffering in their own lives and all around them. And those who are not wealthy have sought to be wealthy so that they could seek to eliminate suffering. 
none of us like the pain unless, you know, well, never mind, just, you know. Unfortunately, our human condition prohibits a world without suffering. The landscape looks different, though, when you view suffering through the lens of the cross. In other words, when you say, God, think of the cross. How could, do you not love me? Do you not care? We're like the disciples who woke Jesus up and asked the most ridiculous question that had ever been asked. Lord, do you not care that we are perishing? Care? That's why he was here. That's why he left heaven. But he came to go to a cross and he rebuked anyone who tried to keep him from the cross no matter how well-meaning. Romans 8 makes it clear that a God who is willing to give up his son to die for our sins and the sins of the world will graciously give us, his children, all things. When we suffer well, there is glory nearby. How do we know? Because we are in Christ and his glory was never more evident than when he allowed himself to be lifted up on a cross to die for our sins. He was forsaken so that we never will be. Do not think, why, Lord, has this happened to me? But rather think, Father, make me like Jesus. Let my suffering glorify you in gratitude for all that you have done for me. And that's easier said than done. We have church members who are in excruciating pain that is chronic and and I think I've never suffered that kind of pain. I can assure you, when I'm in that kind of pain, I'm going to need you to pray for me. So I'm not going to do well with that. In other words, next time I go to the dentist, I'm going to let you know. It's the thought of that pain, right? It's easier said than done, which is why it takes practice. Practice praying, Lord, Father, let me glorify you in this suffering. Make me like Jesus. Last, this is the beauty of Romans 8. Look for Jesus' return every day. If you're new here to grace, we are taking a short break from a three-book study about eschatology or the doctrine of last things. And you, and you may have a certain image in your mind when I talk about last days. But the New Testament teaches, in fact, the New Testament makes it pretty clear that all the days since Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension and the coming of the Holy Spirit are last days. These are all last days. But Habakkuk, which we've already 
studied. Then Daniel and Revelation will help sharpen our focus and deepen our understanding of how to live in uncertain times with a view toward Jesus' return. And it would be appropriate, I think, to end our time this morning with familiar words found in 1 Thessalonians 4. I want to ask you to stand as the worship team comes to lead us in our last song. So if you go ahead and stand, please. And may the Lord comfort you with these words. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers. And I've said it recently, that's the world's largest denomination, the uninformed brothers. Uh, about these about those who are asleep or who have died. I don't want you to be uninformed about those who have, are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, <clears throat> even so, though, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have already died. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive will not, we who are alive, who are left, I better read right here, not up there. Uh, for we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen or asleep or those who have died. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those or go before those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. And how does the Lord comfort and encourage us with these words? By sharing them with one another, us sharing them with one another. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.